Today we are actually going to shift our focus away from 1 Corinthians 1, but we'll be considering that idea, sustenance to the end. We're turning our attention to John chapter 1 today and and next week as well, which we actually spent a, a fair amount of time in that chapter during the Christmas season. In the first few verses of this chapter, John covers a lot of ground, opening with that beautiful piece of poetry about the one that he refers to as the Logos or, or the Word, the one who is Jesus the Christ, the Word who existed from the beginning, was actively involved in the creation of the universe. The Word comes to earth as a human being, enters life with us, walks among us, meets us where we are at every Turn. John says, the word is made flesh and dwells among us. This is the opening declaration of the gospel. The remainder of John's gospel then details what he did while he was here. But that story, what he did while he was here, actually begins in a rather strange place. It actually begins with a man named John the Baptist who appears on the scene, unsurprisingly given the name we refer to him as, he appears on the scene baptizing people, setting the stage for the Christ, calling people to repent, preparing the way or the road, removing obstacles that might prevent people from seeing the Christ. It's pretty wild to think that this is where the story begins, with this eccentric man wearing camel's hair, eating bugs, living in the wilderness, but That is where it begins. And then in our text today, Jesus finally emerges from behind the shadow of John the Baptist and takes over. And really, it's less of a takeover, certainly not a hostile takeover. It's it's less of a takeover and more a matter of John the Baptist simply removing himself, stepping out of the picture that the people might behold Jesus alone. This is what we read in verse 35, our text for today. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So the next day, this is how John the Baptist's work has progressed to this point in the gospel. He he first has given a testimony to folks who approached him who were sent on a fact-finding mission to see what was going on. He then gave a direct testimony about Christ, and then in today's text, finally, in a remarkable display of humility, he points his own disciples in the direction of Jesus. Remarkable because these are his disciples. He has spent a lot of time and mental energy pouring into them, and yet when Jesus appears, his immediate response is to step aside, to de-platform himself, and essentially disappear. He doesn't disappear altogether, and this isn't the last we read of John the Baptist in the Gospels, but in this sudden moment of pointing others to Jesus, He has completed his role. His significance that was pointed to by the angel Gabriel described to Zechariah in the temple on that fateful day, that significance has reached its completion. One theologian said of this incident, 
Similar to Moses, the Baptist, John the Baptist, not the Baptist down the street, the Baptist brought salvation history to a boundary that he himself was not allowed to cross. All that was left for him to do was make room, to decrease, to leave the scene. And that's what he does. It seems like an insignificant point, but I don't want to brush past this or miss the significance of that decisive action. I think it is a powerful example of humility, one that should describe the lives of disciples of Jesus. And in this story, it leads to a dramatic shift away from John the Baptist to Jesus and his very first followers. But that whole process begins with John's decision to remove himself, step aside, to get out of the way. Getting out of the way, actually, in some ways, is the story of my life. This is what I mean by that. As a relatively tall individual, I am used to being in the way. Blocking the view of other people is just sort of what I do. It's who I am. I have come to terms with this. I, I think I've mentioned this before, but one of the worst parts about my height, other than shopping for clothing, which at times, to be honest, it hasn't been too bad in the last five to 10 years as shorter length pants have been in style. But I know that as soon, I, I get that the tides are shifting, and maybe they already have, and I'm just not aware. But as soon as long, baggy pants are in, I am out, because I can't find them. But perhaps worse than shopping for clothing as a tall individual is attending a concert. I think I've mentioned this before. Attending a concert, being, uh, having your seat on the front row or near the front, um, it's awful because you know that anybody behind you is cursing you the entire time. And, and so I want to stand up and enjoy the concert with everybody else, but I'm forced to either sit down and look like I'm not into it at all or accept those curses flying from. I, you, you might think I'm exaggerating. When I was in seminary, I attended a concert and I was on the front row, not by choice, that's where my seat was. And a friend of mine was also at the concert and posted a picture on social media and all you can see is me sticking out like a sore thumb. It, was awful. Um, oh, worse than that, I'm really getting off track here, but I randomly met somebody that my wife knew from, from college years, and when this girl met me, she said, I was behind you at a concert <laughs> this year at this venue, downtown Springfield. So I, I'm not exaggerating, but um, Getting out of the way, that is my story, and perhaps some of you wrestle with this, not in terms of physically blocking somebody's view, but it is a fairly common human tendency to want to be at the center, or at the very least to be noticed. I think our social media crazed world reveals that, and that's fine, being noticed, being seen, certainly being known by other humans is a deep need that we have as human beings, but there is perhaps a point at which a desire to be seen can morph into an unhealthy obsession 
with being at the center. And I think that makes discipleship into the way of Jesus difficult. Because Christian discipleship, as John reveals for us in this story, involves a process of decreasing that Christ might increase. Obsessing over centering ourselves not only makes deep human connection with others difficult because we can't see the needs or perspectives of others, but it also makes discipleship quite difficult. Discipleship doesn't call us to ignore or abandon our uniqueness necessarily, but we are called to understand our unique identity in a new and healthy way. And I think perhaps one of the ways we begin to move in that direction is by asking this simple question, in Christ, who am I? And who am I not? It seems that this man, John the Baptist, has come to terms with his identity and his role, which enabled him to live in a way that brought people close to Jesus. He had a following, but he knew who he was, and he knew that wasn't the Messiah. He had a role and vocation in this grand story, but that role and vocation wasn't to secure a personal platform or to save the people himself. His personal honor clearly doesn't matter all that much to him because he is secure in his identity. What an example for us to follow. So now we shift, again, away from John the Baptist. We consider these first disciples of Jesus and perhaps think about lessons we might learn from them. And we're going to spend this week and next week doing this as we look at this text. So John the Baptist is with a couple of his disciples. He sees Jesus and points his disciples to him. The text at this point doesn't identify these two disciples. Later on, we discover one of them is Andrew, but the other remains anonymous. Perhaps, as it has been suggested, it is John the Beloved, the author of this gospel, but we simply don't know for sure. Whoever they are, John the Baptist points them to Jesus, and this is what happens. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So these two disciples begin to follow Jesus. Jesus notices and asks, what do you want? What are you looking for? That's a probing question that is inviting further engagement, not one asked out of annoyance. And their response to this question from Jesus is perhaps also more than it might seem on the surface. They ask him, in turn, where are you staying? Which is more than just an attempt, I think, to make courteous conversation. You know, the kind of question you might ask when expected to make small talk with somebody you don't know. That is not, I I don't think, what's going on here. Many scholars believe this line of questioning indicated that these two disciples wanted to stay with him. They want to remain, to follow, and see what all of this is about. 
Now, I think it's important to keep in mind at this point in the story that their understanding of this man Jesus is still very limited. There are perhaps more questions at this point than answers. And as we read the Gospels, those questions and even misunderstandings continue to persist. But at this point, they at the very least want to know more. One scholar said this, though frequent misunderstanding follows later in the gospel, the spiritual development of these first followers of Jesus still shows the importance of taking steps of faith in response to one's present understanding of Jesus. This is one of the reasons I really love the gospel accounts, because they don't just outline for us propositional truths. It's It's not just this user's manual with a to-do list. It is a story, and sometimes that story is a bit troubling. It's a story that depicts misunderstanding and, and confusion. We see those closest to Jesus miss the point time after time, which for a guy like me is encouraging. I mean, they recognize on some level that maybe this is the Messiah. Even in this story, they refer to him as rabbi. And eventually, after his death and resurrection, they get to the point of being willing to even give up their lives for this man, but that wasn't the case all along. It wasn't always smooth sailing or unbroken confidence and faith. They take a step of faith in response to their present understanding of who Jesus is. However small and seemingly insignificant that step seems, It's actually really important. Here we see a process beginning for these these disciples. They, They don't know a lot about this man. They do have John's referral, which was an important part of the puzzle for them, but they don't have a whole lot beyond that. And yet they respond with a step of faith and follow. This is what I want us to consider today. This idea of taking even small steps of faith in response to our present understanding of who Jesus is. That is this, you you don't have to have all of the answers before you come to Jesus in faith. And, And I get that that goes against nearly everything that's inside of many of us as modern individuals. We like to know, we want certainty about everything before a decision is made. If you're anything like me, the amount of research I will do for a completely insignificant product is kind of embarrassing. So if you're anything like me, we we want certainty before we take a step and take a risk. But if you are wanting to complete an investigation, if you are wanting to acquire all of the facts or figure everything out mentally with a high degree of certitude before you commit your life to Jesus, it's not going to happen. We are never going to have it all figured out. And I really think this is important to think about, not just for those who are considering committing their lives to Jesus, but maybe especially for those encountering that impulse to abandon a faith they once had. An impulse that can be prompted by a multitude of factors, maybe an unending list of factors like 
maybe encountering inconsistencies in the lives of followers of Jesus. Well, if that's what this is about, then count me out. I'm not interested in something like that. Or, or can I really take Christianity in the modern world seriously? Or does Christian faith necessitate a rejection of scientific inquiry or scientific discovery on some level? Or maybe that impulse is prompted by engagement with the scriptures. I read the Bible and I find some things in there that seem altogether strange. Or maybe you've bumped into something like the problem of evil and don't find a way around. It could be any number of things, but when we encounter some difficulty in holding on to faith, when we discover it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be, or we're not finding clear-cut answers to the questions we're asking, it can be a lot easier to decide, well, I don't have the strength to face that, so I'm just going to burn all of this to the ground and forget about it. If this one card in this fragile house of cards is removed and the whole thing is going to crumble, then maybe the whole thing should crumble. It's sort of like that line from the famous scene in The Dark Knight where Alfred tells Bruce Wayne, some men just want to watch the world burn. It's that nihilist impulse. If this can't be trusted or believed, then none of it can be trusted or believed, and so I'm just going to burn it to the ground. If you've found yourself in a place or in a season like that, my hope is that a story like this might be a source of encouragement for you, as it reminds us of the simple fact that Christian faith is indeed a journey. One in which there will always be unanswered questions. One in which there will always be tensions that seem unresolved. There will always be misunderstandings on your part, on my part. Mystery is always going to be a part of the faith. Mystery not in the sense of um, making decisions devoid of logic or devoid of common sense. I don't think that's necessarily a helpful understanding of mystery when we think about the Christian faith. Perhaps this would be more helpful. Uh, Stanley Harwas said this of mystery. Mystery does not name a puzzle that cannot be solved. Rather, mystery names that which we know, but the more we know, the more we are forced to rethink everything we think we know. Faith involves mystery of that kind. To be fair, it's not just the Christian faith that involves myth. Mystery is a part of human existence at large. I, it's difficult to look at something like the images from the James Webb telescope and deny that mystery is a part of our human existence. The Christian faith is not so different from that. We must become comfortable with mystery in terms of our certainty about our own understanding of reality as it exists. And think about your own faith. Maybe think back to the beginning, that initial moment in which you made a decision to follow Jesus. If you have that in your mind, now consider where you are today. My guess is that there have probably been some major shifts. I know 
in my life, that is true. I know it sounds incredibly cliche, but the Christian faith is indeed a journey. And part of journeying is discovery. It is learning. It is exploring. I'll put it this way. If I had never been to the state of Missouri, but I want to explore the state, I wouldn't approach it by driving on I-44 from Oklahoma into Missouri and stop at Joplin and, and assume, well, I've seen the state. This is all there is to it. I've got a Denny's and a Cheddar's, and there's probably not much more to Missouri than this. I think I've got it under wraps. No, you've, you've seen a tiny fraction of the state. You've encountered a tiny fraction of the residents of the state. And, in a similar way, Christian faith is a journey of unending discovery, exploration, and learning. We never arrive. We are always learning more and more about Jesus as our king and what his reign and rule actually means in our lives and how that should guide us. Because of that, it is inevitable that we will change along the way. We will grow in our understanding. Our theology transforms in certain ways. It probably trans, at least it has for me, it probably transforms in some major ways and then maybe countless smaller ways. Things that once seemed super important may seem less important. Or maybe things that once seemed irrelevant actually are shown to be essential to the faith that you cling to. The point is that discipleship always involves transformation. Transformation of our lives, transformation of our minds, and that can be uncomfortable. It can be really disorienting and really scary because we like to know with 100% certitude. But transformation eliminates that possibility to some degree. As Josh Porter, a pastor in Vancouver, Washington, recently wrote, transformation, if we're facing that fear or, or that uncertainty or the disorientation of the reality of transformation, he said that transformation for disciples of Jesus takes place within the guardrails of orthodox Christian thought. And he defined orthodoxy in this way as the accumulated wisdom and accountability of many centuries of the Jesus movement that discerns what teaching and practice align with Jesus and what departs from him. For us, that is by and large the ancient church creeds. We're thinking the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the, the most concise summary of orthodox Christian thought. And that provides some safety to explore and learn and hopefully prevents us from feeling that absolute disorientation when we face uncertainty, which is inevitable. Our beliefs about Jesus and his kingdom are unquestionably important. We spend our lives trying to discover in more depth and more accuracy who Jesus is and what he has called us to live into. But having a finely tuned theological system of thought does not have to be the beginning place of faith. In fact, I think most times it's not going to be. We begin the journey, 
often with a small step of faith in response to our present understanding of who Jesus is, which is incomplete. We begin that process of transformation. We begin that process of discovery, not with a system of thought, but we begin with Jesus. Like these first disciples. And usually, perhaps like the position they find themselves in, that begins with more questions than answers. And that's okay. These two disciples don't have all of the answers clearly, but they encounter Jesus, and that was enough to take a step of faith. And they're beckoned by Jesus. Come and see. And they step in that direction. They've already indicated their intention. We want to follow. We want to spend the day with you. Where are you staying? Can we join? We want to get to know you and discover what all of this is about. I think it is an incredible example of the process that is involved in discipleship. Faith in Jesus for us is not the arrival at a destination. It is often just a step in the direction of Jesus. This is what what I want us to think about this week. The process of discipleship, this process of growing, learning, discovering, journeying with Jesus, learning to become his apprentice, isn't a one-time decision we reach, but a decision and a life that we are pursuing day after day after day. We encounter Jesus And yes, we have an initial encounter with Jesus, but we spend the rest of our lives encountering Jesus, accepting his offer of life and learning what it means to be his people. This is what we do week after week as we gather in this room. Our prayers, our worship, listening to the scriptures be read, listening to the instruction, but also gathering around this table. Everything we do week after week as the people of God is seeking to encounter Jesus, to be challenged and encouraged to continue that journey with Christ, a journey of faith that involves one step after another, after another, after another. So again, today, we are invited to accept Christ's invitation Maybe that's an invitation you haven't accepted. You're invited to do so today. For many, I know, it's an invitation that you have accepted many, many times. And today we have another opportunity to accept that invitation, to take another step in the direction of Jesus, to seek another encounter with Christ. And we do that today at this point around the table of Christ where he has invited us to remember his life, to remember his death and resurrection, and to find our lives in this dramatic event, to find strength and encouragement, to find sustenance for that journey ahead because it's a journey that requires sustenance. It's one where we need the strength that Jesus offers us day after day. So you are invited. I am invited to this table to find that strength, to continue living this life of faith. I want to invite you to stand.
I'm going to say a prayer for us by way of invitation to the table. We will make two lines down these two center aisles. You'll come to the front. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take those elements, receive them on your own. Um, we invite you to this table. If you're new or visiting, you are invited. It, it's not our table. We are not the ones inviting. We are extending an invitation that Jesus has offered us. So we welcome you. If you want to take a step towards encountering Christ, we invite you into this moment. I want to say a prayer for us. Almighty God, whose Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world, grant that your people, illumined by your word and sacraments, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory, that he may be known worshiped and obeyed to the ends of the earth through jesus christ our lord who with you and the holy spirit lives and reigns one god now and forever amen and would you join us at the table of our lord